find a way that is going to make a living that will not cause you to compromise your artistic vision, and then you can be free. Welcome to episode number 53 on the My Story Podcast. The My Story Podcast features interviews with interesting people who tell their stories and the life lessons they've learned along the way in order to inspire you to live a life of meaning and purpose. Hi, my name's Conrad Weaver. I'm a documentary filmmaker, storyteller, entrepreneur, and now the host of this very show, the My Story Podcast, and I'm so glad you stopped by to listen in. On the show today, I have my friend, Ruth Margraff. Ruth Margraff has been called the leader in the American avant-garde for her audaciously original use of language that provides layer after layer of richly textured emotion and imminent danger according to the Dallas Morning News. Critically acclaimed for writing the martial arts opera's Deadly She-Wolf and A Voice of the Dragon trilogy with the late composer Fred Ho for the Apollo, Guggenheim Museum, La Mama, Brooklyn Academy of Music, and a commercially successful tour with Columbia Arts Management to 33 cities in 2003. Ruth's night wind from Afghanistan for the play Seven began touring the world in 2008 introduced by designer Diane Van Furstenberg, and in 2010 by Hillary Clinton with Merle Streep at the Broadway Hudson Theater. Seven has been translated into more than 20 languages and performed in 32 countries. Ruth is an award-winning playwright and libertist, and she's a professor of playwriting and writing as art at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Ruth says, my writing is art. It's operatic and wild by nature. And today, We're going to hear her story right here on the My Story Podcast. Hey, if you enjoy the My Story Podcast, please be sure to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss an episode and then share it with a friend or a colleague. I'd really appreciate it. And now here's my interview with Ruth Margraff. Well, Ruth Margraff, welcome to the My Story Podcast. I'm so glad you're able to join me today. Thank you so much, Conrad. It's really good to see you. <laughs> yeah, so we go back a long way. We won't say how far back, <laughs> how long ago, but we've met uh, years ago in college, and uh, we've uh, both had interesting careers, and I've been following your career over the last number of years, and you've done some fascinating work. So tell us a little bit about who is Ruth Margraff. Oh, well, I am a writer. I think prim- primarily my um interests are in writing, although my writing touches into music and art. Um, I think of my writing as art, um, and I teach at an art school now. Um, so I, I, I've written all my life, um, re- started writing songs and poems when I was really little, and mm. just continued on. And um, sometimes my work is called operas, and I've worked in the theater world, and um, um, it's taken me to many places. I toured as a musician in a couple of different bands. So I, but I don't think of myself as a musician. I think of that as kind of a, a side thing where I try to um, uh, pick up my accordion or microphone to sort of get out of my head. And, and, um, but it's a, a part of the writing and a tool of writing for me. Mm-hmm. What was, when you were young, what was that inspiration to write? And where did that come from? 
Yeah, you know, I've often tried to figure that out. I, my mom, um, when I was really little, um, read me Emily Dickinson poems, and mm. she read them to me when I was under five years old. I, I, I think it was way too early to handle some of the darkness, but I'm, I'm really thankful to her for giving that to me because I think that's part of um, childhood and growing up and truth. So I, I really appreciate that she gave me those poems. Um, she wrote poems herself and put them in a drawer. And I think that um, seeing that and also the hymns that I grew up playing for church, I, I played as a, my dad was a preacher and I played for um, the congregations, self-taught um, as mm. a musician. Mm -hmm. But those hymns, you know, I think about Fanny Crosby. She was a mm. blind hymnist and mm. her um, songs and songs like um, I Come to the Garden Alone, those mm. kind of lyrics stayed with me. And a lot of my first um, writing was shaped like hymns and mm -hmm. um, rhyming like hymns. Um, until I got a little older and figured out I don't have to force everything into rhyme. Um, so I think the church was a big influence on me as to become a writer. And um, I, I really think of myself as divinely inspired and gifted by, by God to have these talents that I have. And I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Um, it sometimes seems like a bit of a curse because you can't get away from where the path is giving you ribbons and trophies and you know it's it's marked for you you really you can't get away from it in a lot of ways mm -hmm. but i'm i'm thankful for that and i don't think it's just me i think it's i'm a vessel and we all are we all are um, sure. creative vessels of um inspiration if we choose to allow ourselves to be that and so um so i think that um music and sitting in the in the church listening to my dad preach um i think there are parts of me that are kind of like a preacher you know still i i still my students sometimes say you got a bit of a preacher in you, you know? <laughs> and i've learned it from my dad you get some you, do you say can i get an amen for that <laughs> yeah exactly i get on these little soap boxes and you know but i i feel that it's important to um, I think there's times when you want to be quiet and listen and, and really step back and let other people take the lead and, and speak um, that haven't had a voice. But there are times when you have to take a stance. And I, I, um, yeah. I think that um, that has also motivated me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, many of your writings, your, at least what I've seen, tend to have a kind of dark and dangerous themes. And so where does that come from? Well, um, I think that I've seen a lot of violence in my life. There's some that um, I've experienced personally, um, living in cities or, you know, just living in with people that have been um, damaged by violence themselves. And then that that goes out to the people around them, whether they intend it to or not. I've seen people really hurt and have um, developed my compassion for those who are suffering. Um, I see suffering as um, an important part of being human, and we hope that it's not always the only thing about being human, but, but I think that that violence is something that I witnessed. And as I traveled and went to Bosnia and um, India and um, places that are war-torn and, and have been 
ripped by ethnic violence, I couldn't help but reflect that in my work. Meeting Fred Ho um, was a huge motivation and, and life-changing mm. collaboration that lasted, you know, um, I think it was 17 years. He died in 19, in uh, 2014. I was going to say, you've done quite a bit of work with him. Yes, I worked with mm -hmm. him. Um, we made six martial arts operas together, and watching the martial artists was also a lesson in violence and, and darkness, mm -hmm. because I think that there's, um, there are a lot of key principles I learned from, from watching the principles of self-defense and the mm -hmm. stance of the fighting styles of a martial artist coming from maybe a snake or a crane or dragon um, and taking that style into the physical body and um, using it as a way of defending oneself. So I think that um, the, um, the violence that I've seen, I try not to, um, as they say in, in, uh, in, peace building and coexistence training, try to do no harm, you know? So mm -hmm. I try, even when I'm portraying violence in my work, um, to not re-traumatize the audience or traumatize mm -hmm. those who haven't experienced trauma themselves. And it's a fine line because- I was gonna say that's a fine line. And in, in, in filmmaking too, in the documentary work that I do, it's, you know, it's a, it's a fine, like right now I'm working on a film about PTSD and first responders and, you know, how much of that do I, how much of that, that trauma do I show, you know, to, in order to tell the story? Yes. And so, so how do you balance that? Yes. I think that it's a, it's a constant, um, navigation and it's something that I, I have been using my teaching as a way of also use, um, getting into my research that affects my own personal artistic work. Um, seeing what my students are are interested in and they teach me a lot you know in terms of the things that are coming out you know and ways of dealing with triggers and and uh, ptsd um, accommodations for students that have different ways of learning um, for me it's about where do i place the point of view and is it a single point of view or a multiple point of view? And those are very political things for me, very social, spiritual things for me, because if it's a single point of view, then it's going to be self-motivated. And um, the even the rising action of typical Western storytelling is built in a kind of um, imperialist structure where there's like this um, hero going on a journey it's built like colonialism, you know, it's like mm -hmm. the master of two worlds, leaving his threshold and fighting the battles. And, um, and um, I don't, I don't want to tell that story in that same shape. So I'm often looking at um, multilinearity, you know, uh, I'm looking at multiple points of view, a kind of cubist kind of uh, form that isn't always uh, commercial. I mean, it's seldom commercial, but you can mm -hmm. take aspects of it and have a sort of commercial appeal that you need to get the credibility to to mm -hmm. have the resources to make the other more artistic and um, uh, soulful work. But I think it's also about where does that story end? And mm -hmm. is it a ending that is, I've been thinking a lot about Denouement and and um, resolution because 
most of the time we teach to conflict, crisis and climax, which are rising actions and singular in point of view. But the denouement is, is a part of the story that we don't often focus on. And, and in my courses this next semester, I'm going to bring that into my teaching and I'm bringing it into my work as well. And I'm really excited about it because I think that in this pandemic, we've had a lot of denouement and we've really mm. been able to live in, in a almost state of meditation and really reflect on a lot of um, things as we have our solitude and, and um, distance from our social activities. So that, mm. um, that where you place the ending of the story and is it a final ending? Is it sort of like, that's it, no more, someone won and someone lost? No, I, I think mm -hmm. it has to be a valley, a um, valley that is going to sort of rise again into another story and mm -hmm. many other stories. My story is just one of um, so many. And so so those are things that I'm looking at right now to, to deal with trauma and, and also to think about at the end of the day, is my purpose to have vengeance on those who I disagree with, or is it a peaceful intention? And I, I think if we, that's another thing to think about with the denouement and the ending is like, what is your intention? What is your, your sort of mm -hmm. end game purpose? And if you mm -hmm. think about that, even Edgar Allan Poe says the whole plot is pulled through that intention or that kind of ending place. So, mm -hmm. so where you end up is, is really important and, and what, what kind of reaction you get from your story. If it makes people feel incited to hurt others and to take vengeance and to make people violent, then that is, that's not the purpose I want to have. So showing the violence from the point of view of a sadist is a very different point of view than to show the violence from the point of the victim or the point of feeling that harm and, and hurt. Mm -hmm. So um, if we suffer with those protagonists, then I don't think we're going to want to do that to anyone else. Mm -hmm. Has your work sometimes been a, a statement or a fight against the cultural norms? Absolutely. I think that um, being an American and understanding myself as Amer an American, coming from the right wing, you know, I was raised in an evangelical fundamentalist um, home and culture, being sort of thrown out of that actually by my work, by my artistic work. Um, and in some ways that was a good thing because it, it put me into... Um, a defensive, <laughs> a defensive <laughs> position where I had mm -hmm. to speak my truth, and it was coming from both both um, wings for a while. You know, I've been in the left mm -hmm. wing, the right wing, and mm -hmm. I am really, in a way, neither. I, I think of myself. I, I was looking this up recently. It's not actually a biblical phrase to say you are in the world but not of it, but I remember hearing that as a, a child, mm -hmm. and it comes from several um, biblical passages that they've paraphrased. But I think of myself as that way. I am in the world, but not of it. And um, as I have come to know more mystical poetry and um, 
think of myself as more mystical and um, seeing the parallels between mysticism and Christianity and many faiths, um, I see that they also, the, the Sufis also um, talk about turning away from the world in all its ways. So I think that as an artist, I have done that involuntarily. I, I don't think that I meant to be so far out of line of you know, what, <laughs> what the dominant commercial culture mm -hmm. is. Um, but that's just my journey has been to be on the margins and to be on the edges of uh, almost everything that I join. You know, it's really, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that that is the journey of an artist often is to be sort of not in step with the popular culture. Um, so it, that's a painful thing if you are looking for resources and, and you are looking for fame or fortune, but mm -hmm. I wasn't looking for those things. And so my validation and, and understanding of the worth of that journey is coming from a place that I, I feel is art. You know, it's about mm -hmm. living the life of the mind and, um, and giving oneself to that, whether mm -hmm. it's popular or not. You know. mm -hmm. So in, in the course of your career, just from from what I've read, you've really uh, made a name for yourself in the the world of opera, for sure, and some other places. You've won a lot of prestigious awards. You've been you've had shows in you know many many theaters around the world. Has that kind of artistic notoriety influenced you or changed you in any way? No, it, it's just a matter of resources, especially as a collaborative artist who needs performers, if I'm going to make something that is staged and work need to work with performers, other musicians, designers, of course I need to find um, resources for that. And if I don't have that, I the plays and operas just dwindle on the vine. And I've had many of those that, that do that, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> that might have one, um, showing it might not even be a full production but it's it's um finished or you know drafted at least and so i've been thinking a lot about that as um things are shut down and and realizing that my my work is not really just about theater and performance live performance you mm -hmm. know i think a lot of performers are now considering what is liveness what is you know i took a, a workshop this summer with uh, Orchard Project and we examined the idea of liveness and what is it in virtual space, what is it in this space that we have here, the Zoom and, you know, um, audio kinds of connections through the phone and, and um, all these other kinds of spaces that we have. Um, so I, I don't think that I have had that kind of fame that, I mean, I don't think a lot of people even, you know, know who I am other than if they are kind of on a path that's similar. In those circles. Yeah, yeah it's right. not like yeah. I have like that kind of notoriety, but I feel that I do have to keep one foot that is always kind of in the credible world where people can sort of say, oh, these are your markers of credibility. Otherwise, I won't have any materials sure. to make my work. And and maybe I could then just write poems again and be on the page. But um, mm -hmm. even then, you need to connect with publishers. And I think a lot about Emily Dickinson, you know, who was really just 
writing and tying things up in ribbons, you know. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I think there's a bit of um, that kind of ambition in my um, life. And uh, I also think that I've observed a lot of really famous and um, wealthy people that are that I've met and and I don't necessarily want that you know for my mm. for myself because it ends up being a kind of invisible commission to turn their work in a certain way and there's all kinds of obligations that come along with that social and personal and I just I've really cherished my um, solitude and privacy and that's important for my work and so I've kept um, that sort of as a necessity, professional necessity, but um, but also it's not a driving force in my mm -hmm. ambition. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I once had someone ask me, are you famous? I said, yes, to a very small group of people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, to the people that really matter, I guess, you know, that that's what, what it means to me. So when you're sitting down to perhaps write an opera or write a, piece of art what's your process it's different every time um, depending on what it is I'm making who my collaborators are what kind of space it's going to be in I really try to let each project be a kind of world in and of itself so I'm always open to new ways of working and kind of turning on the axis of um, imagination what kind of form and uh content and function it's going to take. But um, I think there is a kind of uh, common ground that is maybe there underneath all of the work that is that hasn't changed much since I was a child. <laughs> I was thinking about this recently. Mm -hmm. And that is that I, well, I would say that there was a long period of time from the time I first started writing and making these little books that, you know, were for the family, those journals and diaries became a way of thinking and reflecting and, and um, considering that became my writing. And then there was a long period of time that I didn't really journal. I didn't write in diaries, to, so to speak. Like, I, there's a lot of scraps of paper that... I would write on and I collect in like old suitcases and stuff um, and would probably go, <laughs> go running into a fire for those things <laughs> just so that I could burn them myself. Um, but so there is a kind of journaling, but there was a long period of time where I wasn't even journaling, but it had become so much a part of who I am and how I think that the journaling was still going on <laughs> without the, the pen and paper, which is kind of an interesting concept. I try to talk to my students about this. But I've gone back to journaling because I had a um, sabbatical recently and had a little more time. And then with the pandemic, I've had even more time. So I, I'm now back to writing um, every day in the morning. And it's so amazing to go back to that space because it reminds me of being a child and this kind of innocence that is still part of even our adult uh, perspective. So I think that um, that is a very messy kind of writing. It's, I don't think anyone would be able to make sense of it except myself if they found it. And I hope most people <laughs> don't go looking for it. It's too uh, strange. But those seeds of like 
trying to process daily things, relationships, you know, things that are troubling me, I'm mad about or um, sad about, those become the seeds for a kind of fertility that is in and the compost for my every project. It's, it's really the soil that becomes um, everything that sprouts from these other projects that, that take mm-hmm. on much more distinctive kind of um, unusual kinds of forms. You know, I haven't journaled in throughout my life. There was pe- periods of time when I maybe took a week or two and just did, you know, but this year I'm making more of an effort to, I bought a, a book, a notebook just for the journaling. Mm. And so I have it next to my bed. And so my goal is to write something in there every day. I, I've already messed up, but <laughs> this year, but I'm really wanting to explore that process to see what comes out of my brain, you know, when I'm thinking through the day or thinking through what's going to happen that day, just to begin to write down some things. And I need to be more disciplined at that. That's amazing. That's really great. To take the time to do that, you know, and reading some things you once said, this is maybe a while ago, uh, you once said, I have never been able to do what I like as an artist in the U.S., And I feel incredibly censored and confined and stifled when I serve American audiences in theaters. Do you still feel this way? And why or why not? Yes. Yes. Um, I think that, um, unfortunately, the theater audience, and I want to be merciful to the poor theater (laughs) audiences because, oh, I hope they can all come back. You know, I mean, it's really Mm. a a trying time. That's got to be tough for a theater artist. Yeah, so I I feel a little more, I think at that time, I don't know what year that was, but (laughs) I was a little more like defiant and and, Mm -hmm. um, sassy um, towards theater because it was doing well, but now that it's it's hurt, you know, it's really, Mm -hmm. I I think that I I would have a little more compassion for, for theater audiences, but... I think that there's they're weaned on television and they just, you know, they want a kind of story that is so it's it's just dated, you know, it's really it's not like I think the other art forms like the art world and the film world and um other art genres have um just progressed a lot faster than theater and I think there's a lot of reasons for it, but especially when you think about other countries that have a ministry of culture, you know, um, we don't have one and we're mm-hmm. one of the f- only developed countries that doesn't have a ministry of culture. Um, we And I have to say the only country in the world that doesn't provide resources for filmmakers. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, my Ukrainian friends, you know, they go to the, to the ministry of art and they get a grant to produce a film and we can't do that here. No. No, and so you have it's this very frustrating, <laughs> very frustrating, and and even more so. I mean, even I, I think film is you're up against the shadow of Hollywood and all the right. kind of apparatus there mm-hmm. um, as entertainment. That's not the same as what what you're right. doing and and what um, the art of it is. But I think that uh, that's why I I went to so many festivals abroad and just started taking my work outside of the United States, especially when the funding was just, I mean, I've been fortunate at times to have um, grants and and funding, but, and I'm 
grateful for that, but there are times when it's just been completely dried up because it's so competitive and there's so many artists looking for a crumb of <laughs> any yeah. sort. That it's the same way in the film industry. In fact, I'm trying to get a, a film grant for my documentary and it's so incredibly competitive, you know, and they're, the, the grantors are looking for a very specific niche, you know, that they're trying to fill. And if you don't fit that, then, you know, you're out and it's, it's really frustrating. Yes. And, and that's, I mean, as I'm thinking about what's going to happen to the glut of work that has piled up during the pandemic, especially in the performing arts, I, I really feel like, are we going to find another way to support the arts? Because to give that, that sort of trophy to the one artist that beats out all these other, it just seems very limited in um, understanding of what art is and the contribution to culture that it is, which most other developing countries recognize, you know? So, <laughs> so America is really, um, you know, we have this large muscle of entertainment and the entertainment industry that pe a lot of people think is, takes the place of art and culture and it doesn't. And, and so, so I understand my, place as an American artist. And yes, it has been very frustrating. But I also think that there have been times where I lived abroad for long periods of time and realized, oh, I really am American, you know, like, I, I think there is something that I deeply, deeply love about America. And that is the multicultural aspects of our country being uh, the melting pot of, if, of immigration and, and mm -hmm. so many cultures that came here. Of course, we have to look at the history of the indigenous cultures that were here to begin with, and then the slavery that made America um, flourish. But I think that all those things are built into the fabric of, of our culture, for better or worse, and they are multicultural. And when I go to I spent a lot of time in Greece. I spent a lot of time in Serbia, a bit of time in India. Um, and I realized as a woman, I really need to be here <laughs> because <laughs> I'm thinking the way I do and um, making the kind of work that I make, I would probably be one of the first to be ex executed in some other <laughs> places. <laughs> so I'm happy that... I was born here and I'm more appreciative of uh, the American scene. <laughs> what would you say to someone like me who's not really educated in the, the, the theater, the, the uh, perhaps the more modern or even postmodern forms of opera or theater, what would you say to someone like me that, will help me better understand or appreciate that form of art? Well, in terms of opera, I'm not sure I even appreciate it. <laughs> <You know>? like, <laughs> there are a lot of things I, I just loathe about it that are mm -hmm. bourgeois, they're, you know. Um, so that form, the, the, op the form of opera is something that I, I struggle with myself. And that's why I have tried to find entry points into it. But I think that there are maybe some operas that are 
that could be entry points for you. I'm not sure if you would find this interesting, but there's an artist, Robert Ashley, who wrote um, minimalist operas and um, experimental operas in New York. And one of his operas, um, Now Eleanor's Idea, I saw when I was a graduate student. And while I, the first half of it up until intermission, I hated it. I, I really just, you know, I'd heard all the hype about him. And he's one of these artists that is only famous in small circles, too, mm -hmm. you know. But so important because the second half of the um, opera, I went down to my actual seat because it had been raining and I got there late and I was in the wrong mm -hmm. seat, really high up in the rafters or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so my, my real seat was closer to the stage and I was able to see the performers better and opened myself to the experience. And that's an important part of that mm. is to be open to um, something that you're not used to and, and just hate it at first, or just kind of like let yourself um, give it a benefit of the doubt and, and just let it wash over you. Maybe give it two years. Sometimes mm. things I've seen like two Samuel 11 by David Greenspan I hated it when I was there in the room with it. But two years later, I understood it and it became a pillar of, you know, <laughs> of my understanding of, of uh, theater. So I think you have to give yourself a really long attention span with it. And, and, but with Robert Ashley, um, there's a kind of minimalist structure that, are you from the Midwest? I can't. I don't know. I grew up in Ohio. Okay, yeah, so, so I did too. And that kind of uh, landscape of flat fields mm -hmm. of grain, it's in the music, I think. And so I was able to access the plot is that small. Like it, it doesn't have these large climaxes mm -hmm. of story. It's really minimalist story. Like there's mm -hmm. small increments mm -hmm. of... of um, portraiture and and so I would start with Robert Ashley and, <laughs> and maybe don't go to David Greenspan but um, <laughs> Robert Ashley Meredith Monk um, um, there's a, a collection that um, Fred Ho was a part of I was a part of it in oh boy I think the mid 90s maybe late 90s I can send it to you it's a uh, um, that has a whole collection of these kind of operas. Mm -hmm. John uh, John Moran is another um, artist that you might find interesting work. Um, things that are at St. Anne's, Brooklyn Academy of Music, The Kitchen. If these things come back, I hope they do. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. How much of your work over the years has been speaking to the culture and how much of it has been creating culture? I think there's a turn and return to both. I think they're both needed. There's a book called Return of the Real by Hal Foster that I think about a lot when I think about these kind of um, turns and returns of, of um, for and against, um, especially the margins or the edges of um, what is avant-garde, you know, like, okay, something might be avant-garde in one period of time that is 
ingrained in the culture 20 years from then or 40 years from then, 100 years later. It's part of the uh, status quo and the dominant culture. So there's a, a kind of tide that goes out like the tide of uh, the ocean that comes and goes, ebbs and, f- and flows. And um, I see myself as really part of that edge where times I sometimes I have to dip in and be part of the mainstream culture in order to get the work seen or done or mm-hmm. approved. But then I have to go back to my um, the soul, which is really always about this. I don't know. It, it ends up at the edge, and I'm mm-hmm. not sure why that is. I don't see it in my family. I don't see it in my family tree. You know, <laughs> I don't know mm-hmm. where it came from that edge. So, mm-hmm. but I think it's it's given to me, and um, that's what I I um, that's where I have had to take it. So. Mm-hmm. I've kind of had frustration sometimes and and moments of when I fight against the the quote unquote Hollywood culture and the film industry you know I've I've attended the American film market in Santa Monica and hobnob with you know the movers and shakers in Hollywood that you know buy and sell films but then I hate it because I I, I want to make my own way and you know and specifically when it comes to documentary work you know Sometimes if you're not part of that crowd, you're kind of like an outsider. You're kind of on the fringes. And and I kind of like that, you know, and I kind of try to make my own. So, you know what, I'm going to have success at this in spite of the fact that I'm not part of that crowd or not part of that documentary culture. And where is that balance of being your own artist and going your own way and still making a living, yeah. you know, it's a, it's a that's, that's a tough, it's a tough place to be. <laughs> yes, it's, it's really tough. And as a working class artist who doesn't come from money, I really um, have uh, had points of, as, um, as the um, Conference of the Birds calls it, valleys of poverty and nothingness, you know, <laughs> and I think those are important valleys of, you know, reflection and I have always had, um, since I had my first job at 12, (laughs) paper route, and then I started working at 17, and I've always had three to five jobs, like, Mm -hmm. that make money, that that, um, contribute to my livelihood, and, well, I would say, like, the five, and when it's five, it's, some of them are not making money, (laughs) but, (laughs) but, um, I think you just have to work super, super hard. Like I, I've had to be so disciplined and so like just uh, labor intensive that a lot of things have fallen by the wayside. And I'm sure other artists have even larger complaints in that um, area. But in a way, it's it's a um, good thing because that discipline and that um, those skills and tools have become more and more important to me in terms of money. Um, Mm -hmm. And lately I've realized that the things that I learn, even from my job, my teaching job, when, for example, I, um, when I was chair of my department, I helped the architects build out uh, an entire wing of my department. So we moved Mm -hmm. and, 
moved our whole department to another building and I was able to design that with the architects. And the reason I was able to do that was because I know theater space and I know mm -hmm. like what the, I can imagine something that's not there that needs mm -hmm. to be dem demoed to like uh, demolished to be rebuilt. Mm -hmm. And I know how to use space um, without wasting, you know, really multi-use of space. And then I have realized, okay, I had all those skills and did all that for my job. Why can't I do that for my own uh, profession? Mm -hmm. And so I have taken that mantle and I'm working on that now as in terms of studio space and using my skills to, um, to actually start small business kinds of side business things, you know. But I think that the, the discipline is, is um, useful in many other ways. It's not just about, okay, I have that job that makes a living or something. But, but also in terms of your question about making a living, I've always had um, some kind of job that covers the bills. Like I just mm -hmm. have to cover the bills because no one else mm -hmm. is going to do it. And I can't sure. depend on my family to bail me out or something. So... Mm -hmm. I always have had that kind of core. Um, and once I have that covered, and that's always been by something that is not exactly art, you know, so mm -hmm. it leaves me free to write the way I write. And the mm -hmm. university, I've sometimes called it the last patron of the arts, although at times I realize it is also a corporation and it, it has its own kind of dealings with money that can be quite shady. Mm -hmm. um, As we've seen over the past number of years with uh, celebrities paying for their kids going uh, to school and, you know, yes. that whole quagmire. Yes. Yeah. But, but as far as a job, teaching has been a godsend to my career, and I'm very grateful to have had the teaching jobs that I've had and the one I have now, which I am really fortunate to have um, in an art school where I can be who I am, very, you know, transdisciplinary and uh, also continue in the kind of work that is artistic rather than commercial and also be, you know, speaking to students that are always younger and growing at the edges of mm -hmm. whatever's coming next. So, so to me, teaching has been a uh, way to keep myself, you know, safe in terms of livelihood and yet also mm -hmm. safe from um, a kind of solitude, a sanctuary in the, in the university because people don't care about it as much as they do, say, a job that is an artistic director or a movie star or something, you know, like mm -hmm. those more famous kinds of jobs that, mm -hmm. that come along with a lot of compromise that become written into what you can do with your vision. So I would say, and I say this to my students, find a way that is going to make a living that will not cause you to compromise your artistic vision. Mm -hmm. And then you can be free to write whatever you want and um, live in um, an artful way. Mm -hmm. In the in the course of your life, what are some of the things that you've learned about yourself through your journey? 
I think that I, I'm much more Eastern in my understanding of what is yin and yang in terms of whether or not I'm good or evil or, you know, there are times when I, I think of the self as a reflection of a kind of God that is everywhere and God that is in us. And there are times when I think that the self is a very dark place that is um, ego-driven and um, dangerous. And those are both true. And they can coexist as thoughts within myself. I think early on I tried to just have like one way of thinking and one idea about just about everything. And now I am able to let a lot of contradictions coexist in my thinking and my work and and my understanding of um, who I am. So that has been the biggest revelation, one of the biggest revelations to me. And the other is that something I'm thinking about a lot lately is, as I was talking to you about the denouement and the sort of understanding, there's a book called Hunger Mountain by David Hinton, who really just is translating a lot of ancient Chinese poetry. And he talks about walking, I think they are walking meditations, but sometimes I'm walking with friends or neighbors. I see myself as more part of nature than ever before. And I find that to be really comforting because when I think, oh, the world is all messed up and there's all these things going on and what can I do and what can I, um, what can I, how can I live? I look at nature and I see not this quiet, peaceful thing that I used to think nature was, but there are violent storms and, and um, trees that fall and animals that rip each other you know, to, to pieces <laughs> in the forest that's so beautiful. It's all part of what's going on. And I'm a part of that. And I'm, that's all. I'm just part of it. And that gives me tremendous um, peace that that's all. <laughs> just, like there's in Hunger Mountain, they, one of the poems is about a leaf that it's at the end of winter when there's like kind of ice that's been melted and frozen and it's not beautiful. It's kind of ugly, especially in Chicago or places like in the Midwest. <laughs> but that can, when the light hits it a certain way, it can just become this, this chandelier of um, radiance. And it's just a rotting leaf that is under ugly ice, but when it's hit by the sunlight, it becomes this beautiful thing. And so just feeling that, you know, we're all just living and then someday we will die and become part of the, <laughs> the, the nature that is um, other things that have lived and died. And that gives me a lot of um, peace and release from all the pressure of daily mistakes and and passions that I think are also important. Do you ever, in, in writing, do you ever get stuck? And if you do, what do you do to move forward? Yeah, I'm, I, I don't believe in writer's block because I, I just think that usually when what is called writer's block happens, it's just you have to clean the house or take care of your kitten or, you know, like <laughs> whatever it is that, life is bringing to you that is all part of the writing and it's not that it's stopping it it's just um 
going deeper. It's not on the page yet. It's just Mm -hmm. um, in the subconscious. Um, But something happened um, a couple years ago that was really unusual for me. And that was um, my mom's um, best friend died. We knew he was going to die. And then my mom got really sick and has been struggling with her health ever since. Um, when that happened, I, I kind of, lo- I think of it as losing all my ambition. I really mm. became this person that as driven as I've been, as, as full of ideas and full of like um, discipline, as I was mentioning, as I've always been since I was little, you know, suddenly some bottom dropped out of that and I Mm. just stopped. And it was really painful because I, I didn't know what was happening. It was probably grief. It was reflection. I needed to just do some really hard looking at why I was doing what I was doing. And, um, but, but I think that that's there still, like there are days where I just, I'm like, you know, I got out of bed and I just, I did a few things and that's all. I, 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 you know, I don't have that same like productivity that I had before Mm -hmm. that happened. That wasn't the pandemic that did that, but the pandemic kind Mm -hmm. of has exacerbated that for others. And it hasn't helped it, right? No, no. And it's certainly um, made it, you know, more difficult to see what, what it is we're doing. But I think that those are not even places of, um, complete obstacle. They they are necessary to just sort of realize that you know why am I doing this? It it, it becomes a really reflective space of you know when you go back to the work, you have a, hum, a humility and a sort of understanding of vulnerability and that we are fragile, um, limited finite beings that are and it happens to every artist no matter big or small Mm -hmm. so i think that that is also a really productive place and and thinking about um composting and um decay and those things that you mentioned as questions earlier about the darkness the kind of like Mm -hmm. violence um those are as as you look at um the productivity of say a field that is going towards harvest or going to be planted those fallow times those times of decay and and um, bleakness are really important to the harvest you know so Mm -hmm. you have to have that to um to maximize the fertility of the soil and so i think of it as all part of the the cycle of fertility and labor and beauty that's an interesting concept that uh, I know as there's times when I, you know, get stuck, maybe I'm editing a piece and, uh, and that this has happened numerous times with some of the films I've produced, I get to a place where I have to leave it, just leave it, sit there, you know, for a day or a week or, you know, a while just to, before I can come back to it, to, to really, and then sometimes when I do, it's like the aha moment. It's like, I remember one time I was working on a film and I forget which one it was, but I was just like, just, I couldn't find the rhythm of the story. And so I left it for a while and I came back and 
all of a sudden it was like, there it is. It just showed itself. Yeah. You know, it, it was this epiphany that was, it was an amazing experience, almost a spiritual experience, you know, of like, wow, this is, this is where, and it got me excited again about, you know, finishing this and, and moving forward with it. And it was, it was so much fun, but yeah, sometimes those times of, you know, where we question, am I doing the right thing? Am I even doing, am I making the story that I need to make? You know, am I telling the right story? Mm-hmm. You know, I think can help us. I, I like what you, what you say that sometimes that death and dying need to cultivate that soil. I think that's a really cool analogy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what are some of the big life lessons that have perhaps guided you throughout your life? Well, I was thinking about this um, place I stayed in outside of Paris. It was an artist residency on my first sabbatical that I had. And one of the simple little things they had written as you came into the space was um, leave no trace. Hmm. And um, that's an interesting philosophy because we like to make a mess, you know, <laughs> like, we like to kind of take up space and market. And if you think about um, traveling, when I think of the art of travel, there's a way of traveling that is imperialist or kind of like seizing and conquering. And then there's a way of traveling that is more worship, worshipful and pilgrim-like where you're going to, um, you're going on a pilgrim a pilgrimage to be enlightened or to worship mm-hmm. somewhere when you get there. And that is not taking and, and mm-hmm. owning or um, stabbing down a flag <laughs> or something. <laughs> it's leaving no trace. It's coming mm-hmm. to, to um, be respectful and to be enlightened and learn something and then to go, you know, because you leave that space open for the next person and the next um, uh, opportunity for that place. So that that is something that is really hard to learn, but I try to travel that way and I try to work that way when I'm in a space or as a guest or, you know, like, mm-hmm. um, as a guest of many things, like in a theater or as a residency or those kind of things. It's, it's a way of kind of collecting like you can make a mess when you're there but just clean it up and get it out of there so that it's not gonna mar the whatever um, beauty of the place so and then I'm thinking about um, and this just um, as you were talking about editing and when is something finished when is it the right story or the story that you want to tell I think about the idea of wabi-sabi I believe it's called where there's sort of like Mm even if you finish something, you leave this kind of mistake mm-hmm. in it or mm-hmm. mar mm-hmm. it in some cases, right. if it's too perfect. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's um, something that I really aspire to. Um, sometimes that's when you just say, okay, enough. I'm going to mm-hmm. move on and make something mm-hmm. else because you can continue to edit or <laughs> you know, like yeah. revise Forever. And that's true in the, in the film business. And I and the, the quote's not original with me, but I use it all the time. I say, you know, a film is never finished. It's just abandoned. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, you get to the spot where it's like, okay, 
I could edit this till, you know, for another thousand years and it still wouldn't be right. So I'm just going to quit. And this is the, the presentation that I make and my films aren't ever finished. They're just, I just abandoned them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I've been playing around with Instagram. I, I just joined about less than a year ago and it's an interesting format because you just kind of really does have this instant story kind of sure. tiny story, like the things that get shared are um, just different than Facebook or other mm -hmm. platforms. And I'm interested in that kind of uh, like quick glimpse of, you know, and then the story that just, disintegrates like you can find it again but it's really right. uh, time based and short time based mm -hmm. glimpses of things that's kind of nice too where there's just kind of uh, tiny stories that might just flit by and they I'm interested in those kind of formats right now mm -hmm. too but yeah I think um, uh, when you think about when is something finished and um, um, the other thing is that it really becomes a print of that time period that you mm -hmm. make it in. And so if mm -hmm. you start pulling threads of it out later, say you come back to it five years later, 10 years later, a year later, and you pull something, you could just destroy mm -hmm. everything that was really timely about that, that piece. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's good to just leave it alone, even yeah. if it's not completely perfect. Right, right. So I like to ask this question because I'm a filmmaker and I'm curious. And when I work on a film, I write a log line. Mm -hmm. And so when the movie about your life is made, what will the log line be? Oh, well, I, I've been working on my artistic statement and it won't be on my website because it's too long. I'm just trying to work through all the stages of my um, philosophy as I've gone through various periods of of my work and something I've been trying to kind of make as a sentence maybe an aspiration through my artistic statement and maybe that could be a log line I don't know <laughs> um, I'm not sure I've achieved this yet but um, my writing is art it's operatic wild by nature so I'm, I'm trying to kind of um, so, I, but I guess if you're writing it about me, you'd have to change the <laughs> point of view. But I hope that that I am making art and that it is operatic, even though there's something very small and intimate about that operaticness. And I, I take that large um, scale of opera and sometimes make it very small and, and um, insignificant. And those are the, mm. the pressures that I like about that but then this wild by nature i i really um i i think there is something kind of wild about my life and and i think about wildflowers and i planted some this past summer and they were the most amazing things to plant if you can find the ones that are um, native to your mm -hmm. where you live mm -hmm. um because they you just kind of scatter them Right. And they grow and then they seed themselves. And, and mm -hmm. <laughs> I would like to be like that, you know, like I'm a bit of a yeah. weed or like maybe I'm not mm -hmm. in the most beautiful cultivated gardens, but, uh, but I, but there's beauty there anyway. Yes. And when you see those wildflowers and you have them in just a glass of water, mm -hmm. it's just like, Oh, I, I mm -hmm. just could. Um, 
and they're transient. They're not going to last forever, but they, they, um, they have such a kind of wild beauty that is maybe not as cultivated as <laughs> the, the, what do you call those roses? David roses or something. Okay. <laughs> like, yeah. 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 Well, so what's, what's next for you? What's the next big thing? Well, I am um, working on this album that I'm, that I had started before the pandemic, and I'd recorded about a third of the tracks in a wonderful little studio in Chicago, and I'm hoping to just go back and finish those tracks and then um, bring in some other musicians and, and um, release that I don't know when, but you know that is something that mm-hmm. is on my mind. Yeah. And where can people find your work? Um, well, I have just um, updated my website. I'm still working on the archival parts of it, but um, if you go to my website, you'll see um, places to connect with my um, published work and various albums. Innova Records has a lot of my work with Fred Ho, and it has Mirror Butterfly. Um, my collection of plays that is most mine is called Red Frogs, and you can get that on Amazon. Um, it has three of my plays in it. And what else? Um, other things are published in collections, and um, Seven is a piece I contributed to that can be found at Dramatist Play um, Service. And everything else you can probably find on my, <laughs> my website. <laughs> well, we'll make sure we put the link in the show notes uh, in the podcast and people you. can access it and, and get to it. Well, Ruth, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show today. Thank, Thank you, you for, so much, Conrad. It's really for sharing your story and uh, hearing more about your journey. Thank you for and joining I, and I wish And I wish you the very best and look forward to uh, seeing what new pieces of art you come up with. Likewise. I can't wait to see your, your next films and uh, be well, be safe. And thank you so much for, for doing this. Ruth, thank you so much for sharing your story, for your creativity and your passion for telling stories through your art form. And for you, the listener, please check out Ruth's work at ruthmargraf.com. Thanks so much for listening to the show today. And if you enjoy what you hear, please leave a review and a rating. This lets me know what you like and how I can improve the show. And please share this episode with a friend or colleague. The music from today's show is from my friend, Drew Davidson. Get all of his music on iTunes or Spotify or at drewdavidson.com. Finally, be sure to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss an episode. Thanks for listening. And I'll talk to you again next time on the My Story Podcast. Podcast.